we're back. Welcome to Film Suck. Um, We had to take a week off. This was due to the unexpected death of my husband, my dear Philippe Guterres, which, of course, has been just a a terrible loss. But it's um, actually helped me to get back on the podcasting horse. And uh, luckily, I have have good friends um, who are coming on to be interviewed about the movie Shirley, um, which is appearing on Hulu. It's about the author Shirley Jackson, whose most famous works are the short story, The Lottery, and the novels, The Haunting of Hill House, and We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Um, so we're going to tackle that. Yeah, it's good that you're kind of want to immediately get back to work. I think I need it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, my well, we talked about it, so I don't. I can't pretend like that's the first time I hear it. So right, my my condolences, of course. Thank but um, yeah, about the, this recording. So uh, partially because the, the way <laughs> the podcasting app we're using allows only like three people at the same time. So that's partially why I'm not participating mm-hmm. but uh, but in a way I, I bet the conversation was fascinating without, without me plus I haven't actually even watched the movie Shirley but I have watched some other movies by the director Josephine Decker mm-hmm. and I briefly saw her I think in Sundance was it like two years ago mm-hmm. I don't know so previous movie she made which was definitely like celebrated by critics mm-hmm. called Ma- Madeline ugh, God it's hard to press Madeline's Madeline <laughs> yeah Madeline's Madeline, Madeline yeah. I, I went to the movie theater in New York to see it mm-hmm. and uh, me and my friend had to like walk out after I think the last <laughs> maybe 40 minutes yes. and it's not big, I'm not I wasn't like snobbish it was like not weirdly nauseating <laughs> and uh, boring I don't know uh, that one was very kind of experimental right. about sort of going like about a young girl I, I uh, would who, say offhand yeah, she's the type, crazy. Of, mm-hmm. type of independent filmmaker that I saw way too much um, way too many films by in my days of be, trying to be in that world and, and she's that one. So we, we're very highly critical of the movie Shirley okay. so just warning everyone. Um, it's been very well received I should note. It's got excellent reviews and etc but we kind of we kind of leap into it and that's me and my friend Dolores McElroy. She was on the show about a year ago talking about stardom. Um, she uh, is a lecturer um, in the film and media um, department at UC Berkeley and my other friend Asali Eck who is a Bay Area filmmaker and editor, um, mostly focused on documentaries. She's made a number of them. So they're going to, um, you know, delve in um, to Shirley with me in about an hour long interview. Am I am I right that uh, just judging by the trailer, a few mm-hmm. different like scenes from the film I, I, I could I could watch? It's at least more sort of classically narrative because her other films, Jonathan Decker's films are definitely mm-hmm. more sort of in this kind of mm-hmm. the experimental, not in the not in the best sense of that word mm-hmm. <laughs> so I don't know. Um, this one is yeah this one was clearly you know it's based on a novel that did well it's a kind of riff off of Shirley Jackson's life it just takes elements from her life and then goes mm-hmm. off in fictional directions um, but I, as far as I can tell it's done pr- again pretty well and it's yes it's a it's a coherent narrative even if it is very psychodrama and sometimes you don't know what level of psychology or reality you're actually in but other than that yeah it's pretty mainstream Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll 
I guess I'll get to at least see it. <laughs> yeah, well, you could always let us spoil it all for you. And spoiler alerts, we really talk about the whole film. So if you haven't seen it yet, and you don't want to know what the ending is like, you know, you better wait. Okay, yeah, good that you brought it up. Because yeah. someone was once upset with us that I yes, think we're... <laughs> I know, it's a thing. <laughs> yeah, okay, yes, spoiler alert. Um, I don't know, why not? Joseph and Decker, I don't know how many years ago, maybe a few years ago, I think was uh, lived in the apartment we're renting right now. Oh, really? Oh, my god. A weird coincidence, because we rent, we like blending from a guy who went to AFI as a oh cinematographer. <laughs> and I think it's like such a small, semi-indie, but not that indie man, right? Such a small world that that's just how it works. <laughs> that is amazing. Wow. Yeah, I know. Well, I that doesn't add to conversation or anything. I haven't no, watched the film. No, but it's but, just one of those synchronicity moments that make, make you pause. Wow. <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And then her friend lived here and the friend, we displaced the friend oh. and, uh, and her, some kind of producing partner or something like that. And the friend I did see, but um, mm-hmm. Joseph and I think moved like a bit way back. Right. Yeah. Joseph and Decker. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's just her online presence when I went to, when I went to look up interviews about the film, et cetera. And there's one where she's talking to Martin Scorsese, um, who uh, is the executive producer on this film, Shirley, which really shows she's, she's come up in the world. Um, wow. And she spends like the first five minutes, it seems like it's just almost half the interview time, just trying to, to ascertain whether it's okay if she calls him Marty. <laughs> it's, or should she still call him Mr. Scorsese? And she's very, very blonde and young looking. Um, and it, there's just something sort of like, what? I was very taken aback that that was almost a content free, you know, interview basically about this film that I was eager to find out about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to say, speaking of the movies, or at least like one and a half or maybe two and a half movies I've seen um, mm-hmm. outside the one I walked out from the movie theater, the movies are kind of content free. <laughs> so it's about something, but there's never really anything to really hold hold on to i don't know there's that that's what i noticed and another thing i i don't mind her being whatever blonde and yeah looking that's that's all good but she has this kind of vibe of um I think she's from Texas or something like that, mm-hmm. of this kind of Southern belle, very, mm-hmm. very privileged. And um, and that's fine if she if she could make like engaging films. But I haven't seen one so far by her like that. So so I, know, so I do hold it against her. Yeah. Well, and my Prince, own class Prince prejudice Grand. kicks in when I see that she's also a Princetonian, an ex-Princetonian. Um, and, but, you know, the, the kicker, the absolute for me is this title of this film, which is Thou Wast mild and lovely thou wast mild and lovely oh, so man. this lapse into archaic english and you're just like why so i haven't seen the film maybe it's just a gem but i have to say but, i'm glad oh, I'm i hadn't to remember, seen you know, that butter, title butter mm. on the latch butter on the what latch what about that Butter I know. I know they're I think all I've so parts of that one. Some about some kind of folk song. I don't know. I think she's like one interview I watched uh, with her like years ago. Not, mm. not research for this film. And something stayed with me that again, it's sort of like mm. content free. And the way she talks about something is that I went once to that village. I don't know some country, and was mm-hmm. so inspired by that. And then I made a movie. So yeah. it's basically kind of what would you call that? Uh, she's not necessarily a disaster tourist because it's not. She's not a documentary mm. filmmaker. She's like fictional, but it's sort of a semi-rich anthropology slash, I don't know what, some kind of bad fantasy world. <clears throat> yeah, and I, I just have, have a hard time 
you know, reconciling it with Shirley, which is, is you know, going deeply into psychodrama territory using this mm-hmm. this you know, this kind of legendary author as the as the entree into it. But it seems very, very contrived. It's, you know, again, it's doing very well. It's being very well received by critics. But I think it's it's that kind of critic bait movie um, for exactly that reason, um, that it seems like it's it's being very, very psychologically searing. But in the end, you're kind of like, Wait a minute. <laughs> Who are these people exactly? Um, there's this, you know, there's all sorts of ways they violate the actual psychology of the people, as far as you can gather from reading extensively mm-hmm. about about Shirley Jackson and her husband, uh, uh, literary critic Stanley Hyman. Um, I know too much about it. So I'm the obnoxious viewer who who knows too much and keeps inter- interjecting. That's not right. Um, just to warn you what the interview is going to be like, at least my part of it. Well, at least like who's in there? Elizabeth Moss. Yes, and, she's, and she's Michael Stuhlbarg are, good. are the two leads, and they're both excellent as always. Well, at least she has that for her. Yeah, you know, exactly. that's part of going up in the film world. You get, I guess, amazing actors, and then yes, your exactly. hack weighs yeah. a bit up. <laughs> and your production design, your cinematography, yeah, yeah, yeah. all sorts of things gorgeous. And yeah, that's so what's happening. things are going to get hidden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay, I should stop being mean. Okay, yeah, enjoy the interview. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, see you yeah, next bye week. Bye until next week. Film Suck, we are back and we're talking about the movie Shirley, which um, debuted a few weeks back on Hulu. Um, it had its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival in January. It won an audience award for quote unquote auteur filmmaking. It's by an independent filmmaker named Josephine Decker. Um, and and it's based on a novel by, and of course I'm already forgetting who the novel is by. <laughs> we'll get to that novelist. Sure. Oh, by Susan... Garf Merrill. Um, and, you know, the other credits, I will just simply say, of the filmmaker Josephine Decker, um, include such titles, I've seen none of them, as Butter on the Latch, Thou Wast Mild and Lovely, Madeline's Madeline, and By the Way, and that's B.I. The Way. It's a documentary about bisexuality. Um, I, I have to say my heart sank a bit at titles such as Thou Wast Mild and Lovely <laughs> and Madeline's Madeline. <laughs> How precious can you get? And this is a Princetonian, so my problems with the film can probably go right back to Thou Wast Mild and Low. <laughs> it was so hard not to laugh as you read every single one of those titles. <laughs> I just howled over those. I just, um, I'm glad I didn't see them before, before I watched the film, because it really would have prejudiced me so badly. Um, so I thought we could just, you know, talk about the film as a film. A number of people have, have watched it that I, I see on online. It's gotten a lot of great reviews. I've seen a lot of enthusiasm just from sort of Facebook friend types. Um, so it's actually done well critically. Um, uh, you know, and we've, you know, we, of course, all agreed to talk about this. We're friends, full disclosure. We're, 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 we're old friends. Um, and we talked about this earlier as something we'd all agreed to and been interested in watching. I especially have a deep interest because I'm very, very obsessed with um, at least the supposed topic of the film, which is the author Shirley Jackson. She's most famous for probably her short story, The Lottery, but also for The Haunting of Hill House. And We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Those are probably her best known novels. 
Um, I've read her bio. I, I know way too much. I'm way too invested. So I'm going to be the one with the obnoxious, you know, I'm the dreaded viewer who's like, that didn't happen in that year. You know, that one. So I'm going to save my rantings for a little later. So we can just talk about this as, you know, a film that people would encounter without having to know everything about Shirley Jackson. It's not a straightforward biography at all. Um, it's very much loosely inspired by certain aspects and events of Shirley Jackson's life. So first, let's just tackle how we relate to this thing as a film. And since you both can't see me, I'm just going to gonna call you out in alphabetical order. So Asali, you know, do you have a take that you want to throw out at us before we start discussing? Yeah, well... Uh, first of all, hearing all those other titles, I have to say, uh, thank God the title is Shirley, because I can imagine that uh, she could have come up with some really obnoxious title for this film. That's not that Shirley. Was sick and demented. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we can all be thankful for that. Um, mm. However, yeah, so this film, I really didn't. The first few minutes, I was really digging it. I was like, oh, this this could be interesting. The cinematography is really exciting and interesting mm -hmm. throughout. Um, the, my main takeaway, I guess, is that it just felt like it was trying to do five things at once and it couldn't decide what it was. It seemed really tonally confused. It was sort of a combo platter of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. Mm -hmm. um, the sort of, there's a whole mystery element. There's one scene where uh, the Rose character is like doing some clue, you know, hunting around and trying to get secrets out of the mailman. So there's this mystery element. Mm -hmm. Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? It also sort of leans into all the, depressed writer genre cliches which you know we've all seen the hours and some of these other films that feature famous depressed writers and it really <laughs> sort of had that going on as well and then there's the whole stranger than fiction thing well where the writer's work sort of comes to life um mm -hmm. in the story that's happening so i don't know to me it was just trying to do way too many things at once and i i just couldn't really grasp onto any of the stories with uh, a full interest. And I mean, the other problem for me was the characters felt very like flat and stereotype mm -hmm. and sort of stereotypical. I mean, they're all basically stock characters popped into this, I don't know, confused, uh, confused thing. And, and then, um, well, yeah, the the cinematography was beautiful, but it was very horror cinematography throughout. So mm -hmm. that that didn't like to me that just didn't really work with all the other things they were trying to do with the Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and the mm -hmm. you know there was even like the feminist you know yellow wallpaper kind of element <laughs> yes, running through as well. So mm -hmm. it was all very confusing. And uh, I was watching I watched a little bit of, again with my partner last night, and he said, "I don't understand this movie. I feel." <laughs> Like it's a, this, the, it seems like a horror movie. The cinematography is telling me it's a horror movie. The score is like this sort of fun base. It actually, the score is the best part of the film, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Um, the, yeah, the score is fantastic. I would just listen to that while I'm cooking dinner or something. Um, but the score is like this sort of fun, jazzy bass thing. And then we have these sort of overly acted, very like dramatic characters. So for me, I just I, I couldn't quite grasp into any of it because it just felt very combo plattery. But right. 
Yeah. Well, well I, let me just clear. I'll just clarify a few things before Dolores can jump in. Just just quickly, the the, the we're going to be referring a lot to the 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 importing of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. If you've ever seen that marvelous, marvelous Edward Helby play, the film adaptation, it's great. But it basically involves an older. Um, academic couple playing, you know, nightmarish psychodrama games with a younger academic couple over a very, very long and abusive night. Um, And so what what's how that's manifesting itself plot wise in the Shirley movie is um, it's a big fictional element that a young academic couple comes and moves in with Shirley Jackson who's a famous writer and her husband, Stanley Hyman, who was a leading light um, in the in academic literary criticism circles. And they lived in Bennington, Vermont, and he taught at Bennington College, a liberal arts college, and was a kind of big wheel there. And so they've imported these young people into this feverish scenario. And of course, the horror elements, they're clearly trying to pick up on atmosphere from Shirley Jackson's um, horror writing, which she's most famous for, though she did other kinds. Um, and yeah, you're getting these kind of leprous, greenish, yellowish cast of lighting, especially in the in the house where Shirley Jackson, at the end of her life, was getting quite agoraphobic and was just not leaving the house. I think a, a year and a half was her record at the end of her life that she did not leave the house. So they're again, they're taking little aspects and bits of Shirley Jackson and Stanley Hyman's life together and blowing up aspects of them, then adding, importing a lot of fictional stuff, especially that younger couple. Um, so, okay, just so you, that's clear, so you know what we're, what we're jabbering about when we keep complaining about the Who's Afraid of Virginia <laughs> Woolf importing. Okay, Dolores, uh, you well, weigh in. <laughs> I, have, I have a lot of, a lot of overlap with the Sally's take. Um, mm. I agree. I think the most striking element um, is the cinematography. Um, and it was, the horror element is signified by this uh, handheld subjective camera. And mm-hmm. I read that but, um, so the cinematographer's name is Sterla Branth Grovlin. And wow. this, this, yeah, <laughs> this person was on set um, the entire time uh, doing everything handheld. So there is kind of a sense of intimacy that's built with the performances. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. You know, I thought it was stunning. And the atmosphere of the sort of late 40s, early 50s was, I thought, built pretty beautifully. So mm-hmm. it's it's really confusing to get the script that doesn't seem to know what it's doing. Um, and mm-hmm. I agree. I was really, I was co- uh, confused by the tone. Mm-hmm. I thought that they were going to, they were introducing the who's afraid of Virginia Woolf elements in a smart way because they were going to overturn it or look on it like ironically or something. I don't know. It would be, that would be like irony to some ex- exponential degree. Who's <laughs> right. afraid of Virginia Woolf's already like, <laughs> <Yikes>. <laughs> ironic. But it, it, I just, I, at the end I was mystified. I had no idea how this film meant to be, meant itself. I had mm-hmm. no idea what its own view was on any of these people. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I completely agree. The characters didn't have a lot of depth. Although I will say I enjoyed pretty much all of the performances except for Elizabeth Moss's as Shirley and here Jackson. And here I just have to interject. You are totally the exception in this. The most praise <laughs> is being dedicated to Elizabeth Moss. I was only impressed, as I keep you know mentioning to both of you, she looks so much like Shirley Jackson and that is not an easy one. Shirley right. Jackson was this, shall we say, big boned woman, <laughs> a large featured, ungainly her hair always kind of unkempt and too much, those cat eye glasses that are somehow so, so terrifying. Um, and she just looks uncannily like some, some photographs of Shirley Jackson. So that to me had so much power. I was just staggered. I was like, how did, how is that possible? But yeah, so most of the praise is going to the Elizabeth Moss performance, but, but 
you know, I think I read one saying, wow, she gets Shirley Jackson totally wrong. Um, oh. So, yeah. So, but so Dolores, you've got a standout opinion there. So I say know. more. <laughs> say more. Well, the rest of the actors seemed um, to come so organically out of the rest of the atmosphere. And mm-hmm. the script is bad to begin with. And I thought they kind of did their best, you know, building at least some kind of like repertoire of mannerisms that seemed, mm-hmm. you know, natural and organic. But to me, Elizabeth Moss just seemed like she was acting so hard and none of those lines seem to like proceed naturally from this person mm-hmm. who I think seemed at, like the way they set Shirley Jackson the character to me she seems so smart she wouldn't have even have like bothered speaking mm-hmm. to most of these people <laughs> so um yeah I to me her that was the most sort of like belabored I am uh-huh. acting a role um and it it bothered the heck out of me but uh-huh. I, yeah so I'm I'm an outlier there so that that's my general take. Yeah. And it, it, I think though, I'm kind of with you in the confusion of not being quite sure how to take the performances. You know, I think Elizabeth Moss and certainly Michael Stuhlbarg, who plays Stanley are, genius. you know, both genius level actors and they're, then they're being asked to act like wild, <laughs> you know, all over the place, psychodrama in that kind of Virginia Woolfish kind of way. And they keep shifting ground and you're constantly being kept guessing as to what, what, qualities they have that are uppermost, what their relationship actually is. And of course, in the end, there's going to be a big pull the rug out from under you as you're thinking, you know, the the big contention, the big problem is between Shirley Jackson and her husband. And then there's going to be a sudden, you know, know, kind of against this vulnerable young couple getting drawn into their crazed world. And then it's suddenly going to reverse and you're going to see Shirley Jackson and Stanley (laughs) and Stanley Hyman join forces in a practically cackling with demonic laughter (laughs) (laughs) over the kind of weird ruination of of this couple, Um, which, again, is a kind of borrowy thing. I'm assuming they're inspired again by who's afraid of Virginia Woolf when we see that the couple, the older couple come kind of come back together again and the young people are like staggering out. Exactly. um, Never to be the same kind of thing. Um, So, yeah. So. So it is hard to, to, to assess, you know, this isn't my kind of fair. I'm not generally in love with this kind of, you know, you know, cre- the, the psychodrama kind of thing is not my favorite thing. And especially because, again, I'm obsessed with what relates to the Shirley Jackson I know of and what doesn't. In some ways, this can be vouched for if you read the, the biography. But certainly by the end of her life, and she only lives to be 48, she dies in 1965 at 48, uh, there's, their relationship is a tortured one. He's insisting on an open marriage. He's sleeping with many, many students and former students, while she, of course, is getting more and more disturbed and agoraphobic. He starts off as her savior when they're young. He really recognizes her genius at, when they're both at Syracuse University. He sees it immediately. And he's like, that's for me. And mm-hmm. marries her, not only her, but that stupendous talent that she had. So at first, it's like they're, they're, he is her champion. He is her kind of almost savior in a world where you know she comes from affluence and parents were very conventional and wanted her to be a proper lady and get married and have a proper life. And they just despaired of her. And, and her mother especially was very, very cruel about how far she she deviated from the, the then ideal. <laughs> so it was almost like she was saved and brought into this marriage. They had a wonderful, in their early years, bohemian life. They had the greatest parties. Ralph 
Ellison, the writer of Invisible Man, stayed with them for months at a time sometimes. Um, while he was writing Invisible Man, he was their great friend. They had many famous friends. So for a while, all going great guns. But by the end of their lives, all the tensions are really starting to tell on them. And supposedly she was in therapy, starting to think about if it were possible that for, for her to leave. Oh she gosh. certainly made more wow. money than him, but he controlled the money and kept her on an allowance, oh. for example. I, um, yeah. There's, there's a so tidbit. He's the villain of the piece. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a, there's a tidbit about the acting of these scenes with Michael. How do you say it? Stuhlbarg or Stuhlbarg? I think so. I'm probably wrong. Say, let's say Stuhlbarg. That sounds better. Okay. Yeah. So there, I guess during the production of the film, Michael Stuhlbarg, mm. who's playing um, uh, Hyman, uh, Stanley Hyman, Shirley Jackson's husband, um, one of his sort of genius. Um, improvisations was to add crumbs to his beard as he, if you see the film his performance is a joy and he's you know he's the perfect sort of overbearing yes. creepy um <sighs> predatory professor you know very gregarious mm-hmm. and sort of like oh i love your earth mother qualities and he's always <laughs> you know always yes. crowding the young woman in a really you know obnoxious yeah. creepy way but right. no, i just love me he's just hold on i'm not ready i have to put some crumbs <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. And he, and, he, and he really does nicely these very flat judgments on people. You know, Shirley Jackson asks him at some point when he thinks of the young woman who's in their lives now, and he says something like, I forget exactly, but something like trivial, a little trampy, but whatever. You know, yeah. essentially, if you want right. to go to work on her, fine. Yeah. <laughs> she'll do. Yeah, she'll do for the moment. Yeah. 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 Well, I did, you know, that is another part, like, I sort of appreciated in theory, I, I love a story about a sort of vampiric artistic process because mm-hmm. I do think that artists, especially writers, are vampires mm. of, you know, the people around them. And so, you know, the, the sort of conceit, as you've already alluded to, Eileen, is the idea mm-hmm. that young couple comes in and they sort of mm-hmm. leech the life force and the all of the mm-hmm. specificity out of this young woman um and i thought that was really interesting and i don't know if mm-hmm. we want to get into the plot yet but i have you know i have some oh absolutely go for it okay definitely definitely <laughs> well, I, I couldn't tell i thought there was kind of like a magical strain i didn't know how much to take literally and mm-hmm. the, the young woman is pregnant which is such an important part of the plot and she shows mm-hmm. up to the house pregnant and mm-hmm. but no one else knows except her maybe you see her kind of maybe counting back trying to figure out when she last had her period right before mm-hmm. she arrives and mm-hmm. she shows up on the scene and you know elizabeth moss and shirley jackson looks right at her and says no one told me you were pregnant right so shirley jackson is supposed to be you know um, witchy and sort of in tune with that and then mm-hmm. the young woman is pregnant throughout her stay and eventually has the baby and at the end there's a final scene where elizabeth moss is holding the young woman's child and mm. i thought is this baby real like speaking of who is afraid of virginia wolf like <laughs> exactly uh, yeah. or, or is the child the book <laughs> that, that yeah. shirley jackson writes i mean i didn't know how to take it but mm-hmm. you know I, it did have this element of like magic and i didn't really know how literally to take the, the events of the plot mm-hmm. 
and I think we are supposed to kind of lose ourselves in that kind of, I don't know, again, there's many films, Polanski's The Tenant, uh, Barton Fink, where you lose yourself as far as not knowing exactly how much is the psych, this crazed psychology, how much is some fantastical thing happening, how much is it a kind of sordid reality. It's all, I think that's what they're trying for, that it's all getting interwoven, because they also have the young woman reflected as she's kind of a young Shirley Jackson figure in some ways, and she She's clearly being mapped over the young woman that that Shirley Jackson is writing about in the film. It's it's from her novel Hangs a Man, but her novel was based on the disappearance of a young Bennington College woman, a, a mysterious disappearance that never was solved. Was she murdered? Did she just arrange to to get away from her life that she couldn't bear anymore? Nobody knows. So there's all this kind of laying over of, of different figures. So you'll see Shirley Jackson standing in a place where the young woman has just stood. There's all this over-identity identification happening because it's all about what happens to these suffering young women who don't really fit in. And then Shirley J- Jackson whispers, they go mad. <laughs> 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 yeah. So I think we are supposed to kind of lose ourselves and not know how to rate how real things are, at least in a kind of very troubled middle section. Indeed. But, and, yeah. Yeah. And I think, well, relating to that, one of the last lines that the young woman speaks after mm-hmm. she has very possibly almost jumped off a ledge. Right. We're not really sure. Um, and it's certainly after she has some sort of breakdown, she yeah. confronts her husband's philandering, you know, threatens to leave him. And she's in the car and I think she's being sent away to rest for a rest. Mm-hmm. And her yes. husband says to her, you know, you need a good rest and then you'll, you know, you'll come back good as new or whatever. And she says, oh, I'm not going back to that. You know, little wifey. Um, that was mad. Madness. That was madness. <laughs> so mm-hmm. connecting mm-hmm. to your idea of what Shirley said, you know, they're they're indicating that there's some like folia de or at least folia mm. I don't know, for everyone's in on this folie. <laughs> so <laughs> right, we don't know right. if it's if it happened or not. <laughs> yes, 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 yeah. we don't know. You know, and of course, I'm obsessing like an idiot. I'll allude to my own obsessions again. You know, I'm like <laughs> sitting there going, Hangs a Man was 1951. This is supposed to be here. <laughs> <laughs> she was writing, you know, we have always lived in the castle. That, you know, things like this that are not. Well, what do, you, I mean, what do you think about, what, is it realistic that this is set after the story The Lottery is published in The New Yorker? Does that make sense? Oh yes, because that was that's what makes her famous. Nineteen forty-eight. She publishes the it's the lottery is published in the New Yorker, and it's so it's not only a triumph, it's a scandal. I mean, literally scores, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people drop their subscriptions because they're so appalled, they're so wigged out by this story. I think I think we can't quite conceive, even though it's still a famous. It might still be her most famous work. I don't know if they still assign it in junior high or high school or whatever they always used to. I think that's where I read it. Yeah, um, I read it in high school. Yeah, and it lingers on in a kind of little tradition, a kind of midsummer, um, you know. Um, <laughs> Kind of wicker manny you see kind of it's it's in that ballpark of the purge mm-hmm. <laughs> right. um that kind of writing but it was a shocker at the time especially to Im- appear in such a respectable you know magazine as the new, York- new yorker and it, it just made her instantly nationally incredibly famous and she ta- she says funny things about how the letter writing changed at first she'd get reams of letters of people begging to know what it means what does it mean what does it mean what are you trying to say and then later later as it went on being just 
you know, a standard and getting adapted to, you know, in various ways, TV, you know, theater, blah, blah, blah. I think there was even a ballet. There's some crazy adaptation. Oh, my God. Um, he said she got more and more letters asking her where the lottery was held, what town, and could people go watch? Oh, my <laughs> God. Oh, so there's a lot of Shirley Jackson reckoning with her culture, even if she seems to be evoking ancient, you know, kind of dreadful things in a lot of her writing. Mm. There's an awful lot of just looking at the culture she's in at the at that moment and 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 kind of relating to a horror that she sees and clearly regards as as obvious to be seen especially in a kind of 1950s ish world which is the world she's basically in mm-hmm. and you know the cold war and all sorts of other things but there's a kind of monstrousness operating that she always seemed to tune to and a lot of other people didn't want to be attuned to but nevertheless made her hugely famous okay mm-hmm. But that's early triumph. That's like when she's on the upswing and then all through the 50s, just like the parties, the the novels coming out, the attention. I mean, she far out, she just completely eclipsed Stanley. And that's part of the problem in their marriage. In, right? in real life as well, that was a problem in their marriage? Absolutely. She's okay. just making so much more money. She's so much more famous. It's not like he isn't writing books, isn't well regarded. He is, but there's no sense like that he's playing at her level. Right. But, it, you know, in that last year, they are right in that she becomes tremendously agoraphobic. She's falling apart in that last. They're, they're representing it. This is like toward the end of her life. Yeah, she's, she becomes completely agoraphobic for a year and a half. She's, she's eat, she becomes morbidly obese. They're not showing that. She's just overeating. She's drinking like a fish. She's smoking like a chimney. She's, <laughs> she's on amphetamines. She's on tranquilizers. Mm-hmm. And finally, her heart just basically explodes in her sleep when she's 48. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What, what do you think about the decision not to include the existence of her children in this film? So weird to me. That was one of the first things I was weirded out by. And I kept waiting for the four children to be brought in. <laughs> and I think I, I did read that there were at least they included a few of the kids anyway, maybe all of them in, in some small way in the novel. But they're completely oh. dropped here. And I have to assume it's because the Virginia Woolfing of the thing is just right. going to work with kids, kids, you know, cluttering up the landscape, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's my okay. best guess. Yeah. Uh, that they couldn't figure out how to, to stuff the narrative. Even. There's so much going on in Shirley's life that my first take was, why are you bringing more crazy to Shirley Jackson's life? My Shirley Jackson's life is <laughs> right. you know, pretty crazy. So no need. Um, but one of the crazier aspects of her life is while she's writing this memorable, memorable horror, which is you know mostly where her critical reputation resides, she was writing also, uh, what do we want to call it even? Domest- I've seen domestic literature popular literature based on home being a homemaker um and she's a pioneer a 1950s pioneer in 1953 she writes something called life among the savages about being a mother um Mm. to all these children raising these children and she was way way into motherhood and it was a huge part of and her kids would all i think all or, or almost all would have still been there Um, At least the younger ones would have been. So, you know, she had a whole other, even more successful publishing life writing that. And and, and the other one is called Raising Demons. Um, (laughs) So she brings the horror edge into um, this domestic lit and was hugely, he was making tons more money on that than she was on her, on her more respected um, works. Um, This this is so provocative that she 
was making a living sort of writing about being a housewife mm-hmm. and then kind of overdosed and died of all the housewife man- maladies, you know, too <laughs> <Right>. much, <laughs> just too much being shut in too you know, uh-huh. too many pills. And, um, I think, so Betty for Dan wrote the mm-hmm. feminine mystique <laughs> in, in, in 1963 and right. Shirley Jackson died in 1965. 65. So that seems to be like very much of the era. <laughs> but it's so weird because he's part Betty for Dan. Cause of course, again, you're right. Trapped. She's doing all the drugs, the kind of secret, <laughs> secret right. many drugs. I mean, all the housewives and drinking too much and all that, being being trapped with your ki- her kids. But at the same time, most of that time, she was living the the high life. She was living a great life. She was. Yeah. It's actually like you have to bring Phyllis Schlaf- Schlafly in with all her hypocrisy about being a stay at home mother when Phyllis Schlafly, if you know who, right wing, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, sweetheart of the of, of the yeah. silent majority creature, um, you know, who who was just writing on tour with books, public appearances, all of yeah. this stuff that she was doing she was while, while pretending to be an ordinary 50s housewife. So it's kind of split down the middle between the mm-hmm. Fredan vision and the Schlafly vision of like you're living an incredible life but more and more she's being she's being trapped into domesticity. And she writes interestingly about this, about not being able to find a home in the world if you ever read or see the great movie adapt- adaptation of the of the haunting the haunting of Hill House. Um, it's about a woman who flees her horrifying domestic trap that she's in seeking another home goes to this haunted house where she's been invited to do to study the paranormal and embraces this house as her new home and then of course that home turns into a trap that's literally just absorbing her her yeah. life psychologically so that that's a theme in, in Shirley Jackson's work you you flee the, the the dreadful home you find a new home you think you're saved and that new home becomes a kind of your nightmare prison. Do you think, is there like a historical, I really, you know, I can't prove this, but I always have this sense that the 1950s were like the absolute like nadir of like being a woman. Like I have the sense that before then things were a bit freer, you know, obviously women always worked and cared for children, but there's something about the expectations of the 1950s that just, and you know, probably the sort of like the, creation of the suburbs that made everyone mm-hmm. feel so much more right. isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does seem like that is a truly dark era for being <laughs> being a mother and, you know, being someone who lives at home and doesn't necessarily work in, in the world. It seems like the world gets smaller and much more like stultifying. I don't, I don't know if you share this sense. Oh, I think so. It's just because the, the headlock was so tight and the standards you were being held to were so absurd and impossible right. that most domestic lit is comical. You know, <laughs> I, I'm thinking of the three most famous are Shirley Jackson and also a little later in the 50s, Jean Care of Please Don't Eat the Daisies was her huge initial hit. She wrote many more. And then in the 70s, I think, comes along Ir- Irma Bombeck. She's 70s, 80s. They're all writing from a place of not being able to live up to the ideal. So it's always your comical chaos, your comical inability to whatever, host the dinner party, keep the place nice, manage the children. It's always about how you can't Mm. live up to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But while at the same time, it seems to be a celebration of it. So it's got this kind of schizo quality um, going on in in those stories. Um, You know, and certainly Shirley Jackson's are the edgiest, (laughs) without question. You don't call it raising demons or life among the savages. That's not please don't eat the daisies. Right, right. right. (laughs) (laughs) But the whole humor is about how, at least for these women, and by the way, it's interesting, they were all big. 
Every one of them. Jean Kerr oh. was 5'10 and could huh. never find clothes to fit her. So she writes long essays about just trying to find anything to wear. 5'10 huh. seems like nothing to us now. Apparently in 1950-something, they, 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 she said she was always sent to the sportswear department, no matter what she, like, she wanted the cocktail dress sportswear <laughs> department. They just had nothing. She was just like a freak. She was literally like, I'm going to have to marry a, ba- a basketball player. But of course, she married the, the film, the, the theater critic, Walter Kerr. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it was a huge issue in a way that we just can't relate to now. To be huh. a tall woman, a big bone woman, not a pretty woman, all of these things were like, take on this air of just tragic horror that it's just, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> it's very hard for us to even relate to now. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. No, this is so um, I was reading that her back to the idea of her actual family who did exist and how important mm. they are. Her her son, Lawrence Jackson Hyman, yeah. um, criticized the movie and said, you yeah. know, if someone comes to the movie not knowing anything about my parents, mm. they will certainly leave thinking that my mother was a crazy alcoholic and my mm. father was a mean critic. Yeah. And, um, I guess he also said that he thought the movie failed to portray Jackson's sense of humor. Right. That's been a big failing, yeah. Yeah. But go yeah. ahead, Sally, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, were her domestic lit stories humorous? I yes. Mean, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely funny. And she was noted for being very, very funny. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, yeah. there's very, almost, she's got, there, there is no humor in this movie that I can remember. No. Other than stool <laughs> not having, having a moment or two, but not, yeah, I think he's adding it. It's not really there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those movies where nobody has any sense of humor whatsoever. So he's not wrong about that. Absolutely. And it really is. It's such a, a thin slice of any qualities of Jackson that that's the biggest frustration. Again, if you know anything about Jackson, you're kind of like, oh, do we have to just make her this this right. staring, you know, you know, Medusa <laughs> nightmare creature who hates everything and hates everyone? And I don't know. It just seems like there was so much more going on that was so interesting that it's yeah, it's a well, shame. Ha- have there been any other films about her? Not that I know of. No. That's oh, why I was dear. so excited when I saw this. I was just like, oh, my God, they're going to try to take on Shirley Jackson. This is just going to be such. Wow. There, there is a job to tackle. But it could be great. You know, I, I would say this about most biogra- but, you know, biopics. Mm-hmm. They, they don't even try. They just try to wedge <laughs> people into pre-existing formulas like they do with a lot of genre. But it's just like such a great. I'm always wishing somebody would be, will really live up to the these amazing figures that they take on. And then you're like, oh, I mm-hmm. see. You just decided to play that one, that one thin slice, like the witchy thing. On the one hand, you know, she, she held to that throughout her adult life, that she really was a witch. She really didn't have powers. But she also used it as a joke to kind of terrorize, you know, her, her 50s, you know, contemporaries with her, her own oddity. So she knew the humor of presenting herself as like this crazy literal witch, even <laughs> while she was like, nope. I really am. I really have, do have powers. You know, she, she'd, you know, make fun of putting hexes on publishers she'd come to hate and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, she liked to throw people off balance. She knew she didn't fit. She knew she was how odd, how odd she was in the world that she found herself. Um, but she found a lot of ways to enjoy that. I mean, for a while there, they were, a, they were a, like a hot, hot couple. They, they couldn't have been doing much better through the 50s than they were. I mean, their lives really just sounded like they were the best parties, the most fun, huge levels of hilarity. And in those days, man, you could drink. Man, you could (laughs) live. Man, 
<laughs> and we know we know very little of how the revels, the, the, the three day parties with everyone sleeping over all over the furniture. These these amazing <laughs> things that they could do that, you know, are hard to find now. Right, right. No, it is so like um, liberating and I don't know, appealing to see like a hugely pregnant woman drink a shot and smoke a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, I know. Yes. So wow. You cannot yeah. do that now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, so as yeah. for like um, film adaptations of her work, what do mm-hmm. you think would have been the most successful? Well, I guess, I mean, first, maybe what films have been made of Shirley Jackson's work? Obviously, no biopics before this. Mm. And which ones do you think are the are the best? Well, The Crowning Glory is The Haunting, directed by Robert Wise, which is it's very hard to pull off ha- ghost haunting films. People almost always try to do too much because they're, they're afraid that it's among monsters. Ghosts are the most elusive and the most like, <laughs> all mm-hmm. right. So you saw someone standing there who wasn't really there and, or the door opened six inches or something. So, <laughs> you know, so a lot of directors will try to desperately overcompensate. There's a terrible remake uh, version of it. You can't even call it going back to the source. It's directed by Jan de Bont of speed and action films. Like what oh is he God. doing <laughs> and with Liam Neeson and Catherine Zeta-Jones? It's just, just, it's it's a classic of bad, of doing everything wrong, relying on CGI, making way too much happen. The the haunting is a black and white spare, beautifully mm. acted, deeply psychological study with tremendous actors, especially Julie Harris and Claire Bloom, and so it it just seems to do everything right. It, to me, it's the model of of ghost movies and there aren't a lot of those anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really a genius. It actually, I I would say there are certain scenes that. This is sacrilege, but it almost do Shirley Jackson better. And the oh. novel, the novel is insidiously wow. marvelous, wonderful, terrifying. And don't read it at night because it really gets into your head. And as always, it's hinged on the mental disintegration of a woman, of a woman who, again, is, you know, fleeing one home and trying to find another and disaster is what's going to what's going to await. Mm-hmm. Or or it's even hard to read. Ultimately, they're, they're speculating at the end. Is she really happier? I'm sorry. Spoiler alert. We're spoiling everything. So you just <laughs> have to live with it. You know, we always do on film suck. Um, you know, in the end, she's dead. It's it's very ambiguous how she died. Was it like the ghost did it? She she did it. And they're speculating over whether this is really the best thing, because then she can go and live in that house, which is what she really wanted. And she didn't have anywhere else to go. Mm-hmm. So these bereft women who are wandering the landscape in a state of terrible aloneness, um, knowing that, you know, they're not going to be able to find a place usually without some sort of male figure or some pre-existing group being willing to take them in. And they're almost always conscious of not being wanted, really, mm-hmm. and of probably being about to be abused or somehow or coming to some very, very bad end. So, yeah, so she's she's a very dark writer in that way that she even she thought, you know, I seem to have just written written out anxiety. My my the books that I've written so far are just like a litany of 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 neuro, of neurotic fear. And and she had planned, supposedly, according to her biographer, um, I'm forgetting her name, Ruth something, journalist. It's an excellent biography. Um, came out in 2016, and she talks about how right at the end of her life she was in therapy and she was not only thinking of trying to figure out how to leave her husband she was trying to figure out how to write differently and she had already Mm. started and she said i just need everything needs to be new i need to do a total departure from the way i wrote i just need to be 
I, I need to start all over new. So she was on her way to take one of those, you know, trips that her heroines mm. <laughs> so often did of like, I now have to found some kind of new life. Um, mm. And then she died very abruptly. So that was all over and didn't finish the work she was. She even she even wrote a children's book at one point, which I still haven't read, but I'm a little oh afraid. I know. Oh, God. <laughs> 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 I know. Her whole proclivity, even with the humorous domestic stuff, it's got such, I mean, I, I think it was the sequel I read, Raising Demons, and I was just like, geez, I don't know if I can ever read this thing again. I think people <laughs> accepted it as funny and typical of that genre, but it just, wow, I thought it had a very, very harsh, scary quality to it. Um <laughs> yeah, I don't think she could help that. That was such a dominant, you know, she, no one's better than her at the, the state of agoraphobic terror of having to be out in the world and feeling like hostile eyes are upon you, that everyone mm-hmm. is at least potentially right. hostile to you and recognizes you as somehow other and not wanted and that the lottery could just go happen any minute. You right. know? And I, I, of course, grew up being, you know, this pale, terrified child who felt exactly like that. So when I re- when I read Julie Jackson, I was like, oh, somebody else has this experience that humans look at you with some. They're, you know, my friend John Dolan said, look, there's a reason they call them strangers. <laughs> it's because huh. you don't know what they're going to do. He's like, zombie movies seem true because any one of them could come up and just take a bite out of you. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm a little better now. <laughs> it's rough early years, let me tell you. And Shirley Jackson understood me. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, just sort of googling around with her, I guess there are there's like a rare audio um, recordings of her mm-hmm. reading her own writing, and mm. just the headlines say things like. The voice of Shirley Jackson was unnerving and full of foreboding. Oh, I gotta listen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I gotta listen. <laughs> Even the way she spoke, I guess, would just you know convey the sort of terror that lurks beneath every well manicured lawn. <laughs> exactly. So. Oh my god. Oh my god. I have <laughs> to read. Th- I have to read this. Well, and yeah. you know that that she had this sense of America as being. The opposite of what the way, what it was portrayed. Obviously, she wasn't the only one. You can look to film noir. You can look at a million sources saying mm-hmm. exactly this. America presents this, you know, sunny, friendly, open um, face. But really, you know, dig down on the lawn and see the black beetles churning. Right. <laughs> yep. And you know, find out where you really are. But she she had a, a very unique take on it that made it hard to see the world the same way after you read it, after you read any of her major works. So you suddenly felt like, no, the hostility is just, it's just soaked into the soil. It's in the people. It's, and of course we live in a time, you know, COVID that has revealed to us some of the, some of the, 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 just the barely latent horrors of our fellow citizens as you realize, ah, they're willing to sacrifice a what? All old people. Oh, you, um, their neighbors. Yeah, absolutely. Any, anyone. anyone with impaired health, they don't care. They don't mm-hmm. care. So many. So you're just like, oh, oh, yeah. I'm not even, why would I be surprised? I've read Shirley <laughs> Jackson. <laughs> yeah. This is always my question for people who are drawn to horror. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a genre that I don't know well, and I'm not, you know, because I'm scared. I, I don't, you know, it freaks me out. I don't like to spend a lot of time there. So mm-hmm. what are the sort of like pleasures or comforts offered to to you, the consumer of horror? And it, uh, Solly, for this is for you too, if, yes, you know, Solly if you're a fan. Threw in. But, um, you know, what's the sort of like 
obviously you'd, I mean, or maybe not obviously, do you want to be more scared and, and why? And you know, what's, how does that work? Go for it. Well, I think, I mean, I'm not, you know, I used to be completely terrified. I would, Mm. you know, at sleepovers in sixth grade, Mm -hmm. I would literally just be like burying my head uh, in the sleeping bag while my friends were watching the sixth sense or something. Like I couldn't (laughs) handle anything. Um, But lately I've really enjoyed it. And I think it's truly just the bodily sensation of being scared. You know, it's like, I don't know, it really, you can feel it in your body. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I guess as you get older and more cynical and more ground down to everything, feeling so something so pure as like fear uh, is kind of fun. And um, I, I don't know. I think, yeah, mostly it's just actually having something on a screen affect you that much to the point where your body is tensing up and you have goosebumps and yeah. So, and mm-hmm. I, you know, it does, I guess, I don't know for me, I, I, I think it does. Um, I don't think it really like affects the way I view the world that much. It's more just the, the immediate um, experience of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I really agree that there's something so admirable about the types of movies that have to get a very distinct response from you because the success or failure is so clear. So I, I would say comedy is the same. And it's so hard to do comedy because, you know, it's, it, well, of course, you know, adjusting for time, culture, various things like that, it's either going to be funny or it isn't. And, with with horror film, often that's the case. It's either going to be terrifying, or you're just going to be like, "Oh, that didn't that didn't really work. I didn't get I didn't get the bodily." As Linda Williams, our former I, I, yes. professor, would have argued in her great essay on the quote unquote body genres, you're going to either cry or you're not over that melodrama. You're either going to well, what we won't go into porn. You know what will happen yeah. there or won't. <laughs> and you know you're going to be scared or not. Those those things. That's a very whereas drama. I remember someone telling me I have contempt for drama because anyone can sort of fool people into thinking this is having a dramatic effect. It's not a distinct enough thing. Yes. So you can always yeah. get someone. So what I know is, and this is this is a bad thing to say. He was wrong about this, but he was in a Tennessee Williams play. I forget which one, and he just forgot his lines one night and started just just having to ad lib this whole. I think. I think it was the glass manager and he said I went on for like 10 minutes oh. everyone was crying and at that point I was just <laughs> like all right then I could just bullshit and people will just assume they'll just fill in well it must be working it okay completely sacrilegious and like Isn't so it? wrong yes. about Tennessee Williams but I, know. I get the I point agree. in general <laughs> well, the general point I think holds I think yeah. he's also wrong I don't think I, I would have sat there going that ain't Tennessee Williams. Exactly. But, uh, you can't fake Tennessee Williams. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, so I'm totally with you there. And I, I will just take it farther. As a fundamentally terrified person from my childhood, the, mm. the reason I came to like horror, and you know, this is a familiar thing if you ever study it, that people say it automatically, it's managed fear. Mm-hmm, so yeah. it feels so much better than your own real fear, which is unmanageable. So suddenly you can feel like it's being contained for you. You know, you're at least in some sort of conspiracy with the filmmaker that it's, you know, it can often for me, I'm, I'm, I'm edgy when I go see a horror film because I'm not sure yet. Is it, I am I actually risking that I'm going to be put in a situation where I can't control the fear or mm. or are they going to be able to manage it well and I'll be able to manage it well? And sometimes you do spill over and you get a bad reaction. And every child knows mm. you watch that film that you shouldn't have watched oh, and absolutely. you are just can't sleep for 
two nights, three nights a week, whatever. Yeah. Um, and that you don't want to risk because that's vastly unpleasant. That's really horrible. But I think for me, that was the draw. And because I, I felt as if I was a fearful person and other people weren't. Hmm. So I... Hmm. It actually helped me to to be in a world where they were representing the world as a as a as a fearful place because I was like it is a fearful place why am I the only one who admits that it is no one else seemed like everyone else was like what you're so oversensitive I mean you know all that kind of thing right. you know but I was always like but just I see I seem to be the only one in rooms and in spaces who see the awful thing happening and it happens so much that it was like I lived my own horror. And then I was like, I needed a companion in horror and horror film could do that for me. Yeah. It's so reassuring to like yeah. see something, share your point of view, even if what you're looking at is horrific. Is you awful. Know? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. Yes. Less yeah. lonely. Less, yeah. less lonely. <laughs> and it isn't true of all. I can't watch, you know, I can't watch the horror porn stuff. I'm just not even interested with that so-called, you know, like saw right. and oh, you know, all that stuff. I never got into that. It's only certain ones. Zombie films, ghost films are probably my have always been my favorite. There's just a couple of genres that I like because mm-hmm. um, somehow I can relate to them. Even vampire films have always been a little iffy on, you know, the whole... They can be terrible. Yeah, too scary sometimes. <laughs> sometimes they can be too scary. Sometimes they're too cheesy. They're just trying so hard to be, you know, vampire Lothario. You know, it doesn't really come <laughs> off. It's, you know, that can be a tough one to pull off. So certain movies, it works wonderfully. Others, it just seems silly, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But... But yeah, so I, I really do think, and I think the kinship with Shirley Jackson is that she lived, you know, even though some want to downplay it and say we shouldn't read all of her writing is so autobiographical, but I think there can't be any doubt. A lot of it was. Right. A lot of it was. Um, that that because she was living the fearful life and, and manages to express it, that, that it just drew me to her like a magnet. Just like she gets it, she sees it. And I'm not alone. I'm not alone. I'm with Shirley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not a comfortable place to be, I admit. I know. But <laughs> I am alone. Yeah. <laughs> she seems, I mean, uh, you know, is, um, I don't know, as odd as she is, I, and as much as I didn't particularly love Elizabeth Moss's performance, mm-hmm. it, whatever, I, the sense I get of Shirley Jackson, which comes purely from this film and from Googling things about her, is that that's someone I would like to know. Like, I would like mm-hmm. to be her friend. She seems hilarious and mm-hmm. witty and incisive. And who doesn't want to sit next to the person who can that get person. everyone else down in a, in a room? Yes, you know? at that party. That's exactly, yeah. that's exactly my reaction to her at that faculty, you know, thing. Oh yeah. Just sitting there smoking and looking like, you know, daggers at the world and just like, yes. oh, you want to be right next to her. Absolutely. <laughs> if you don't have anything nice to say, come sit next to come me. Come sit you know. next to me. <laughs> <laughs> she seems like a delight. Yes. <laughs> yes. And her her outsider status is something that I think ages ages well. Because, you know, it was a very stuffy academic world. He was the big shot there. She was the quote unquote faculty wife. That's never going to sit, you know, that's never going to suit her in the least. And it must have been just just as obnoxious as could be the whole thing. So you instinctively feel she's got the right attitude toward this world. And of course, I was in academia myself. (laughs) And so are you. And so, so, you know, we don't, it wasn't not nearly as hidebound as it would have been then. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we we, we had to, we've had to go to many a faculty function where you were just desperately hunting for anyone you could stand in the corner with, smoke an illicit cigarette, 
drink and comment. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I do kind of enjoy, I mean, there's like a sense of, you know, feminine complicity in this film. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's got very sort of obvious feminist strains. Some are too obvious. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a moment where uh, the young woman's heavily pregnant Mm -hmm. and Shirley said, the character Shirley says, let's hope it's a boy. And she could have just left it at that, but then she takes time to spell it out because like things (laughs) are hard for girls in this world. And you're like, yeah, we get it. Um, (laughs) Women all over again. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You could, right. Exactly. Little women. Yeah. No subtext. Um, You could have left it at that. But, but I do like kind of the moments of the women st- and I like how odd it is. Like I, I like, there's a image of the women standing together at the edge of mm-hmm. a cliff at the edge the of the cliff, cliff yeah. where the uh-huh. protagonist of the book is supposed to have been murdered. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I do kind of like the weird, I mean, there's a weird ambiguous sort of like, are they having an affair? Yes. Um, yeah. And that kind of, I think that kind of works in its ambiguity and it's, you know, who knows? It's never really spelled out, but like, there's like a spell that's woven and it's, it's like all these weird strategies that women have to have living mm-hmm. in the world in general, but especially living, living in this world of, you know, the almost 1950s in a college town, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I kind of, I mostly liked that relationship, like that, that sort of like, um, the way the women related to each other, mm-hmm. even though sometimes it was ham-fisted. <laughs> what and, did and you all think? <laughs> well, that's a big yeah. aspect of her work that, the, the, you know, the, the, the weird status she has of, of being a kind of quote unquote lesbian writer, mm-hmm. you know, there's a whole book just of, which I've always meant to, to read and I haven't, I forget if it's a collection of essays or just one book on the, 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 the lesbian aspects of her work, which are, you know, if you ever mm. see the haunting, you know, the great performance in that film, well, Julie Harris is great is by Claire Bloom as the most fabulous <laughs> Theo, the most fabulous lesbian who ever lived, and you're just not human if you don't want to be her. She got the best clothes. She got the best lines. She's yeah. incredible, incredible. And she's gonna try and save the you know the poor beleaguered emotion, you know, f- psychologically falling apart heroine. And it is the chance held out to her: go live with Theo, be mm. a couple with Theo. Theo will save you. The offer is on the table, but she's mm. so hidebound she backs away from it in terror, and that kind of seals her fate. She's going to have to meld into this horrible 19th century man's house mm-hmm. um, and be trapped. And and it's so it's an interesting theme that runs through her work, that there is this other possibility not explored that would have been potentially the saving um, okay. of, of the poor heroine. And I remember first talking to my friend John Dolan, who's been on the show and 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 talking to him about something. I guess we were studying. We were he was sitting on a, on a seminar I was in a horror seminar and we were looking at the haunting and he was like, I thought Shirley Jackson was like absolutely a lesbian and was writing from that perspective. And I'm like, well, I mean, you know, we don't we don't know. But yeah. all we know <laughs> is she was married. She did have one affair with a. it's a famous writer, a very brief, like a one nighter. And, you know, she had a few tight. Re- tiny relationships with men, but we don't know what her relationships Hmm. with women or how literal ever to be about it. But the way you put it, I think is the right way that there is this way that women could draw closer together and have formed some sort of bond that might've been a saving bond, though it's never presented that it's always given up. It's always brief and kind of tantalizing and then it's gone. Right. Yeah, mm. I, I love this. This makes all the sense because I mm. noticed one of the producers was uh, Christine Vachon, 
who Bechon, yeah, yeah, who produce produces you know a ton of films, but right. is like most known for producing nuclear cinema. Absolutely, yeah. Especially mm-hmm. you know like all the films of Todd Haynes and, mm-hmm. and whatever. Um, so yeah, that that totally makes sense. If mm-hmm. uh, I did not know Shirley Jackson was a a queer icon. Um, apparently she is. And now I need to read everything about it. <laughs> yeah. And I, actually, that would I mean, tell me because I don't know if how much it goes beyond that much that I know that there's a book about it, that the themes seem to be there, that she's been mistaken for, oh, isn't she a prominent like lesbian author? Yeah. Um, um, or maybe not mistaken. Um, I don't know. So yes, report back. I would love okay, to know. Indeed. Does she have a standing um, that's bigger that I don't really know about? Okay. The answer is yes. I have you just found that. evidence that <laughs> Oh my God! So Bennington College is where um, her husband taught, correct? Yes. That's yeah. Correct. There, there was an exhibit, like a, mm. a museum or art exhibition, that explores the sexual ambiguity in Shirley Jackson's um, <laughs> novels. It's called oh, wow. Paranormal. For a moment. Oh yeah. my God! <laughs> what do you know? Of course, of course, there is. So of course, of yeah. course, yeah. yes. Yeah. So and I. Yeah, for that, for that, I can't urge you to watch The Haunting enough, even though it's scary. I mean, just oh, because yeah. <laughs> it's marvelous. Oh, I'm here marvelous. for Claire Bloom, absolutely. Oh my god, and she's yeah. wearing her whole wardrobe was designed, I believe, by Mary Quant, who is the mm. designer of the '60s. You just have to see it to believe. So so chic. I want every outfit. It's so oh, amazing. that's fabulous. Well, yes. it definitely yes, yes, yes. shows up in um, Patricia White's uh, famous book about Hollywood lesbianism, um, yes. lesbian representation in Hollywood called Uninvited. Mm-hmm. There's a whole mm-hmm. chapter on the haunting. Oh, um, perfect. Yeah, perfect. Perfect. Yeah. Yes. So mm-hmm. there we go. established (laughs) absolutely yeah (laughs) and your heart goes out to Shirley Jackson because you do feel as if there were that's what she was very aware that that's what she lacked like it's not like there were stalwart women friends for her right she really was kind of struggling her way through you know I don't of course I have to go back to the biography I haven't read it in years but I just the impression that somehow she was she was forced into a kind of unique loner stance that would have been so much better if she'd had women who could be friends with her. It just seems like she didn't. Oh, you know, tragic. She, she had her children yeah. and she had her husband who was more and more controlling her life. And, you know, and the famous friends drift away. Then she's just stuck. Mm. I, I yeah. want to be her friend. I know. <laughs> I know. I know. It's too we bad. all need to be Shirley's friend. Yeah. <laughs> It is. It's tragic. Oh, my God. Oh, well, well, last points. I mean, we've really been doing a great job threshing through this. (laughs) Go for it. Loris, you're about to say something. I was going to ask you the same thing. No, I was just going to say, what do you you think is sort of the biggest misunderstanding or how would you, you know, if you had to give this like a Rotten Tomatoes score, what would you say? (laughs) Well, my score, and I looked it up and now I'm already forgetting, but it's pretty high, the, the score it has. I would put it way further down. I mean, yeah. if I were being generous, because again, I, I'm with Asali in that the early atmospherics created by formal effects, I, I initially was quite excited. I was like, oh, this is this might actually work. <laughs> um, and then it just faded into, I, I agree, a kind of confusion of like, wait, what are we doing here? Um, I'd be way down in the probably 50s, 50s. 60s somewhere just because as you both point out it seems to veer into areas where it's letting you know other types of fiction or whatever direct its course where it would have been so much more exciting to let aspects of Shirley Jackson's life direct its course uh, instead of just borrowing a few and then letting something else determine the logic of the thing 
Mm-hmm. So it's got moments. It's got moments of power. It's got a great look. It's got a couple of, you know, I think both the lead performances are at the very least quite compelling. But, you know, after that, by the end, I was very impatient for it to be over. And I really yeah. hated the ending. I hated the cackling. Mm. Stanley and Shirley <laughs> danced together or whatever the fuck was going on at the end there. <laughs> I, I hated that. I just hated yeah. that. Do you think that I was I lo- there was some like tiny little like weird thing on Google where the director was like answering mm. audience questions using her phone. Did you guys see that? Like if you just search no. the director, no. and it's like really trying to be, you know, she's like sitting on her living room floor with no mm. makeup. And she's like, hey, guys, like I just wanted to answer some audience questions. Um, and one of the things she said was she wanted the film to feel like a Shirley Jackson story. Mm. I, what I don't know. What do you think, Eileen? You're the expert. Well, I, I, yeah, I think I did read that just as a quote in something. But yeah, I, I know why she thinks because again, the, the, the getting in deeper and deeper psychologically to a to a situation that can't help but end in a kind of train wreck status. Getting you know the woman getting who's at the center getting lost and absorbed into you know a nightmare scenario domestic nightmare scenario you can see like charting it out like yeah that would work but tonally none none of that worked that 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 especially that ending that ending is just that could never have occurred in a Shirley Jackson short story ever ever Uh that the triumph of the couple that underneath it all are really bound together in some sort of hell bargain and dreadful about it that no I just can't even so that just seems so tone deaf I think it ruined any of the earlier stuff where it is about this the kind of you know the plight of the of the lost you know you know woman who who's who's going mad Mm -hmm. um under the pressure of I don't know the the the, of the the crazy circumstances that seem to be everywhere you know she she addressed this in all these different specific ways but you always came back to these same problems and these same tonalities over and over of of entrapment of people being weirdly cruel um and in unexpected ways of suggestions of did did was there some sort of assault or molestation and then there's confusion over it so that whole whatever happened to that girl Ah. um makes sense as a kind of you know template for her wanting to write about it um the ambiguity of what becomes of these girls do they just go mad are they driven mad are they killed are they what what happens to destroy um the woman or girl at the center of whatever the story is so they're part sort of they put some footsteps down that path but i would say then they start violating in a big way mm-hmm. that the, 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 what seems to me anyway i haven't read it i haven't even read everything she's written but it seems to me it violates in the sense of there's a kind of there's a kind of doom then I should also say, what? Because normally, if it was too doomy, I wouldn't want to read it. So oh. there's something <laughs> there's something that takes on, I don't know, something that is voluptuous almost. Something that you can love about it. Hmm. Um, in their destruction, is it destruction? You're not 100% sure. Like in the end, for example, of the uh, we have always lived in the castle. There are these two sisters, one who has to go out in the world, the other who stays kind of behind living in an agoraphobic state. But they're both terrified of their community and you don't know why and you're trying to figure out what happened. But in the end, they wind up barricaded in their house. 
their huge house and arranging never to go out again. And it's a weird kind of, you can't say happy mm. ending, <laughs> but there's a kind of satisfaction because the, the forays into town are so nightmarish and so vividly conveyed and the hostility of the locals is so extreme that you can't wish them to have light lives out in, in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, and you find out, you find out much more literally than in some of her stories, what happened to precipitate all of this hostility and the strangeness of the situation, but it takes most of the novel to find out what did happen. Hmm. Um, it's something quite, quite deadly and dramatic. Um, but there's, there's a kind, and it's sort of like, you know, Haunting of Hill House is another good example. There's something ambig- ambiguous about, is this actually the happy ending for this woman who had nowhere to be and now is in this big house, <laughs> you know, as a ghost? Yes. And she's found her home at last and you kind of are torn. Like, eh, is it really a tragic, terrible thing or is it the best thing that could ever have happened? Hmm. I love that. Now I see in a way why all of the Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf came out because there's, mm-hmm. there's like a similar... It's kind of like a dark, decadent, but like, as you say, very satisfying mm. and somehow mm. not depressing if yes. you're right. a crazy dark person. <laughs> right. Like, it's like, this is not depressing to consume. It, there is something very, yeah, I guess satisfying is the best word. Um, like, yeah, but yeah. It, and if you think of how they handle it at the end of Hughes Afraid of Virginia, they're sitting there very close together talking very quietly. And for the first mm-hmm. time, it seems quiet in Who's Afraid of Virginia. Right. <laughs> as George and Martha are having their final close conversation talking about going on together i can't you would remember the the, the exact yeah, lines i can't it's perfect it's like it's like your sister's in a way like you know he he asks her who's afraid of virginia wolf virginia wolf virginia wolf and she says i am george i am uh-huh. you know like very quiet right. and calming. <laughs> it's like right. they're That's finally right. admitting like god everything is terrifying and over- yes. <laughs> overwhelming yes. and at least we we have us and we have this we have on and our home and yep yeah. Right, right, that's <laughs> so, right. And so the dancing around and cackling is exactly the wrong note to strike. If they if they'd only ended on some quiet some quiet sense of that. But we have right. our home. We know each other's demonic quality something, but you know, just it just it just went off the rails very suddenly in a bad way. Yeah. That didn't get to that sense of, oh, that's somehow weirdly satisfying. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Thank you. Like now, I get it. Thank you both mm-hmm. for raising that because I did. I couldn't articulate what was wrong with the end of everything. <laughs> that, that's it. That's it. It's too. Yeah, it doesn't admit the terrors of the world. It's almost like right. those two characters are in control, and they're right. And at the end, they're still in control. And you know, as you've all been illustrating, that's not Shirley Jackson style. No one's mm-hmm. in control. No one's in control. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Even having the young woman go off saying, well, I'm not going to do that. Be wifey. That, 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 that's just way too bald and right. kind of dumb. Obvious. <laughs> you know, and obvious. Too much learning. Yeah, too yeah. much learning. Exactly. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> well, I hope everyone goes and reads Shirley Jackson. I'm going would be, to. I just wrote down. Yeah. Oh yeah. If, if there's one thing this movie's given me, it's a new interest in Shirley Jackson and a desire to actually get to the real Shirley Jackson through mm-hmm. her work. That, I think that's always the silver lining of all these terrible biopics mm-hmm. or like pseudo biopics is like mm-hmm. at least the person who's worthy of our attention has a, some kind of renaissance, you know? Right. So, yeah. Exactly. And I, I have to admit, I was reading up on her a bit, and I, I didn't realize she's. Uh, there are a lot of very snob literary figures who don't rate her highly. I thought she mm-hmm. had a 
major rep. So like Harold Bloom was just like, meh, you know, Wait. one-dimensional characters or some shit. And, you know, and then there was a New Yorker piece I was reading. It was just like, yeah, she was, you know, she's not that highly regarded. And I'm like, but now she might be beginning to come back. This was from a few years ago. And I was like, what? I always <laughs> thought, she, you know, I think maybe the suggestion was she'd had so much popular success and she wrote in genres that weren't hmm. highly respected. So horror and then that domestic thing that that kept her from ever being considered as successful as she was ever in the first rank. But I was a little shocked by that. I thought, surely by now we all realize she's great. <laughs> um, okay. But I'm not positive. But, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a compliment to be rejected by the New Yorker literary it, guy, <laughs> I think. Yes. So... Indeed. I, I think, though, th things might have changed. I think, And Eileen, I, I think you're right. So. You said, you know, rec uh, maybe it changed recently. I mm. There's a note I read, you know, I'm reading somewhere online that says, in 2009, Harold Bloom, um, Speak of the Devil, published mm. an extensive study of Jackson's work. Mm -hmm. um, oh, you're right. No, it's to your but point. This is me with the meeting. Yes. No. He wants to argue that she's not, she's, she's only so-so. <laughs> Who publishes an extensive study of someone yeah. to say they're not worthy of attention? <laughs> what? <laughs> that is absolutely correct. Who does that? Harold Bloom, I oh, guess. What a, yeah. Wow. But you know, there are contemporary even the, but even the contemporary writers, I mean I didn't recognize a lot of their names who love her, you know, but like they mentioned pop people like Neil Gaiman and Stephen King yeah. is a big fan. But there were other probably, you know, admittedly, I don't read I don't read people who are considered the top literary figures. So they might have been in the list and I just don't know about it. But I'm I'm actually a little unsure where she stands <laughs> reputation wise right now. But who cares? Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> Go read her. She's just she's fab she's fabulous and she is truly there is no one like her. She she writes in a way that yes, you can actually say she is a real auteur if you can bear that concept. <laughs> um, yeah. So cool. She stands alone. Yeah, for for good or ill. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you both. That was so fun to talk, Shirley. It was a delight. I learned so much. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. Oh, oh it likewise. Thrilling. Yay, we did it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll have to have you both come on again because it's so fun to talk to you. We'll, we'll find other topics. It's too, too fun. Absolutely in. <laughs> for all sure. Right. Yeah. So thank you, Asali. Thank you, Dolores. Thank you all for listening. And of course, um, we will be back next week with some scintillating topic. We're trying to decide on what, um, and but we will keep you posted. That's all for now. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye.